morning people and there are evening people. And usually they marry each other. Uh, morning people are those that kind of wake up in the morning bright and chipper and they greet the day with, uh, good morning, Lord. To be honest, I personally do not understand those kinds of people. Uh, I get up early because I have to, but um, I identify myself more with the rational people of our world, the evening people. Amen. <laughs> if I could stay up late and sleep in, I'd do it, if I could. In fact, I'm convinced that if morning is so wonderful, they ought to make it later in the day. But us evening people are really reluctant to get up early. And instead of greeting the, the day with, good morning, Lord, we usually say, good Lord, it's morning. <laughs> Big difference. Reminds me of that old familiar story of the mother who came into her son's room to wake him up one morning. She opens the door and she calls out, rise and shine. Get up, it's morning. And from under the crumpled covers comes the voice, why? Give me three reasons why I have to get up this morning. And the mother tells him, well, first of all, it's Sunday and you have to go to church. Secondly, you're 43 years old and you know better. And thirdly, you're the pastor and people expect you to be there. We all struggle at times with reluctance and making excuses. In our passage here this morning, uh, we discover the ultimate reluctant excuse makers. And it unfortunately costs them everything. Someone once pointed out that excuses are the cradle that Satan rocks men off to sleep with. To be honest, again, we are all guilty of making excuses. And when we do, we are not only ripped off and robbed of our faith and joy, but we also miss out on the calling of what it means to be citizens of God's kingdom. And this morning here in our passage, we're looking at one of the keys to the kingdom. Let me give you a little background on this passage. Uh, one day a Pharisee invites Jesus over on the Sabbath for a meal, a large meal, a banquet, a feast. And it was during this meal that Jesus gave a little table talk about what the kingdom of God looks like and how to experience the kingdom of God. He teaches several important lessons here, and it all culminates with uh, the great parable of the banquet, the, the parable of the great dinner. Follow with me here in verse 1. Jesus starts off with a lesson on compassion. Verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And so Jesus here and uh, these other guests at this large feast, this large banquet, were gathered together and suddenly this man with dropsy appears. He has uh, what we all, we all call uh, edema. He walks in the door. It's a horrible disease. It basically causes your body to, uh, to swell up and uh, get puffed up, and it's because of either cardiac problems or liver problems or, or kidney problems. 
And we don't know if this guy just kind of wandered in from the street or whether he was planted there by the enemies of Jesus. I believe he was planted there because it says that they were watching Jesus very closely. They wanted to see what he would do with this particular man. This guy can barely walk. He comes in the room, and everything suddenly gets very silent, and people try not to stare. But with the rabbis and the lawyers uh, standing there, Jesus decides to make a big case out of this with a question. And it's a pointed question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? You see, if Jesus didn't heal the man, it would show that Jesus didn't have care or compassion, and he did. If Jesus did heal this man on the Sabbath, he would be in violation of breaking the Sabbath law, big time. There were 11, or actually 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. And if these 613 Mosaic commandments weren't difficult enough to uh, follow, uh, the religious leaders tagged on thousands of more just to clarify those original 613. For example, in the Mosaic Law, one of the commandments was to keep the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. Well, what does it mean to work? Well, the religious leaders came up with dozens and dozens of clarifications as to what work really meant on the Sabbath. For example, uh, how many steps can you take on the Sabbath? They spelled that out. How many letters can you write down uh, when, you, when you write a letter on a piece of paper? They had that spelled out. Any more than a certain number of letters, and it was work. Any more than a certain amount of steps that you would take, that was work. And so what would Jesus do? I really believe that these uh, religious leaders that day were using this uh, afflicted man like a tool to basically accomplish their own evil purposes. They didn't care about this guy. They just wanted to openly expose his handicap and deliberately put Jesus in a place that was very difficult. It was a no-win situation. What would Jesus do? We sometimes do that today. We exploit people. We use their weaknesses for our advantage. Jesus never did that, ever. In this case, he took the man, he healed him, and he, and he sent him on his way. And then he defends it with a parable about an ox. Some versions uh, use the word son. And with this parable, Jesus was basically saying, should you treat your animals better than I treat this man who was made in the very image of God? In other words, if the Sabbath day is holy, then you ought to do holy and good deeds on the Sabbath, including healing. You know, it's amazing how many people will treat animals better than they do uh, their own family members. Uh, people will fight each other, they'll use abusive language toward one another, and yet they'll kiss their family dog or cat and treat that family dog or cat like a king or a queen. Do you know that far more is spent on dog food every year in America than on foreign missions? I'm not saying that dogs should go hungry. Or cats, although I don't like cats. <laughs> Actually, I do. They taste like chicken, but I'm sorry. <laughs> What I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> what I'm saying is that people should stop treating people like animals and animals like people. Uh, just this past week, USA Today had an article about the Non-Human Rights Project, where they're trying to give rights, full human rights, to a chimpanzee. And uh, it, it's, it's crazy. This world is turned around and upside down. If you give a... A monkey, a bad banana, he could sue you in a court of law because he has rights. And that's basically what they're saying. People will give $25 a month 
to basically uh, prevent animal cruelty, which is good, but they won't spend the same amount in support of a starving child in Africa or India. Our society is so twisted up and it's so upside down. People are treating animals like people and people like animals. Well, Jesus goes on here with a lesson uh, from, on compassion. Now he talks about uh, humility in verse 7 through 11. While Jesus was healing this man, he turns around and he sees the Pharisees, the religious leaders, fighting over, fighting over which seat around the table that they want to sit at, the place of honor. Look at verse 7. He began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, Listen, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than, than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place, because that's the only place left. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now these religious leaders at every banquet, every big feast, every big meal that they'd ever go to, they always wanted the places of honor at the head of the table, the best place. And the people that followed these religious leaders basically followed their bad example. Now we might laugh at that, but we made the same mad scramble at times today as well. Someone once said that there are more status seekers and more pyramid climbers in churches and other Christian organizations than we would care to admit. In fact, the competition is often so intense among Christians who will often argue about who has the largest church, who has the, the, the greatest programs, who has the, the biggest outreach. My church is better than your church. My pastor is better than your pastor, and so we're going to market him and bring him to a theater near you. <laughs> three typical measures of success today. How, how do we know a church is successful? People use the three Bs. It's budget, building, and butts in the pew. <laughs> how much money is in your budget? How big is your building? And how many people attend your church? That becomes the measure of success. Listen, I don't care how big our budget is or how big our building or how many people are in our church. The real question is, are we being faithful to what God has called us to be and to do as a church? Paul says, I planted. He said, Apollos watered, but God is the one that gives the increase. God is the one that causes growth. We do the best we can. We are faithful with where we're at. And then God brings the people. God grows the church. And it all depends upon him. Well, the mad scramble for the top seats of honor and privilege only shows how false the view was among these religious leaders as to what success is really all about. Albert Einstein once said, try not to become a man of success, try to become a man of value. I agree. Our society is so twisted, so upside down. You see, in our lives, God is far more concerned with your character than your career. He's more concerned about your maturity than your ministry. Far more concerned about your, your attitude than even your actions. In order to get the best seats, these status seekers here in this passage had to climb over other people, use other people as rungs in a ladder, so to speak, in order to achieve what they believed was success. And Jesus here points out the, 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 the dangerous pitfalls of that kind of philosophy of life. How did he do that? Well, to begin with, we discover here that God, 
that we are not in charge of the seating, God is. The host is in charge of the seating. Psalm 75, 7 tells us, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. God is the host. He has assigned seating. And so any status or position that I achieve with my own push is temporary at best and might often lead to embarrassment. That's what Jesus is telling us here. You see, it's one thing to have a, an ambition that is healthy and biblical. It's, it's quite another to have a selfish ambition toward power and toward position. The person with a true biblical ambition will prepare himself or herself, be faithful in his or her work, and be ready, basically, for the God-given opportunities that might come our way for growth and development. I saw a plaque one time, I think that really explains everything. God always gives what's best to those who leave the choice to him. I love it. God always gives what's best to those who leave the choice to him. You know, I'm still learning <laughs> to give up striving and, 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 and worrying and depending and demanding uh, things from God and from other people. I'm still learning instead to surrender to him my talents, my, my career, my safety, my material needs, my retirement. And instead of chasing after the abundant life, I want God to bring it to me. And he will. He promises to. I heard about a successful businessman who, who basically resigned his top position in one country, or one company, I should say, and he, he took a position in, in another co uh, company in a low position, and he, and he explained his decision. He says, I got to the top by bluffing. I didn't really learn the business as I should. I had a successful business, but I was not a successful person. My character suffered. And now I'm starting all over at the bottom, and it's awesome what the Lord is now doing in and through me. A person's worth is not based on position, a title on the door, or the applause of people, but on Christian character and my relationship with God. That's the Lord's measuring stick of success. Well, Jesus now goes from a lesson on uh, compassion and humility, and now he, he talks and gives a lesson on generosity, beginning in verse 12. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends and your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." I want you to notice here in this passage that the Pharisees, the religious leaders invited to this banquet, all the people who were influential, all the people who were important, the people that were rich. Now, Jesus was not against hospitality for those who can repay you. In fact, the Greek verb here in verse 12, the tense really translates it better like this. When you give a luncheon or dinner, don't just always be inviting your own friends. Don't always only be doing that. In other words, don't get into the habit of only entertaining people who can entertain you in return. There's nothing wrong with enjoying fellowship with good friends. But if we're exclusive in that, it's wrong. When I was a youth pastor, one of the biggest challenges I ever faced was with junior high and high school was trying to get them not to form little cliques where they excluded other students. But you know what? Us adults do the same thing. <laughs> we really do. It's difficult for visitors and sometimes new church members to kind of break in 
to those uh, established cliques that we all have that are part of every church. It's hard to get beyond our comfort zone and uh, break out of the, the habit of, of doing that. And Jesus taught us here to, to live to serve others no matter what, to get beyond ourselves, beyond our, our comfort zone, and invite others in. And God will reward us. In fact, uh, God alone will reward us. Someone once said, you can, you can never get your reward twice. You either get it from people today, or you get it from the Lord tomorrow. And I would rather get it from the Lord tomorrow. It's a lot greater and better there's always a blessing and joy when it comes to obeying the lord and reaching out to others either less fortunate than ourselves or outside of our circle those outside of our comfort zone christian hospitality that's an exciting ministry it's it's, it's being given to hospitality romans 12 tells us it's a distinguishing mark of the christian to reach out and be hospitable Peter instructs those who are going through suffering. He says, uh, be hospitable to one another without complaint. The writer of the Hebrews adds, do not neglect showing hospitality to strangers. In other words, those people you don't know. Those people that are outside, again, of your comfort zone. He says, for by this some have entertained angels without even knowing it. I don't know what that looks like. But uh, in any case, the Lord gave three practical lessons here on compassion, on humility, and on generosity. Now at this point, one of the guests here in, in, in verse 14 kind of blurts something out. I don't know if he was under conviction. I don't know if he was just excited. But suddenly he just bursts out and he shouts, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, praise God. Someday we're all going to be around God's table enjoying it together. Won't that be great? And it's that remark that leads Jesus to give the climactic parable of the great banquet here in verse 15. It's a huge key to the kingdom that we need to understand. It's a lesson in opportunity. Follow with me. And he said to him, a man was given a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry. And he said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. He wanted his house filled up. Real quick, the, the parable of the great banquet here has three scenes in it. The first one is preparation. Everything is ready now in verse 17. And what's really interesting here is how Jesus compares salvation to a great, big, lavish, celebratory feast. Warren Wearsby points out, it, it looks to many believers, when you look at many believers, he said, you would think that the Christian life was a fast, a funeral, or a famine. But Jesus describes God as the next-door neighbor that opens his home up to a huge banquet and a huge, lavish spread on a table for everyone to enjoy. Why does he do that? Because he knows that as lost sinners, people are hungry, they're thirsty, and they're ready to die. John 4, 13 tells us that the water of this world
does not satisfy. Isaiah uh, 55, 1 and 2 tells us that the high-priced bread that people purchase will never really meet their need. And so one of the most meaningful pictures in, uh, of salvation, one of the word pictures of salvation that I think is one of the greatest found anywhere in the pages of Scripture is this big celebration of a great big lavish banquet that everyone comes around and enjoys. It's a feast that God wants us to come to the table for. You know, my mother was 100% Norwegian, or she still is. She's still alive. <laughs> While growing up in uh, our family, I realized that on my mother's side, uh, maybe not all Norwegians are like this, but uh, people, I don't know, Norwegians tend to, to, to express their love through food. Uh, Norwegians don't hug much. They don't kiss very much. They don't really tell each other that they love each other, but they demonstrate their love by feeding you. And you'll, you'll always get offers of seconds and thirds until you are so full, you're about ready to explode. But they won't really demonstrate it in many other ways, at least not the experience I've had. It's like the, the wife who told her, or asked her Norwegian husband, do you really love me? I don't hear it from you. And he said, listen, I told you I loved you, the day I married you, and when I change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> you know, I love my wife so much, I could almost tell her, you know. <laughs> but the thing about this banquet, God has expressed his love in a million different ways, but one of the greatest word pictures is he expresses his love for us like a banquet table, like a big feast, a lavish spread on a table for everyone to come and enjoy. But to really experience the benefit of that, you have to take it in. You have to eat. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And we have to receive him within ourselves in order for him to save us. Our physical food can only sustain our life. But the bread of life imparts to us life eternal for the dead sinner. But when you think about it, when you think about a feast, you also think of joy. There ought to be a tremendous amount of joy in living the Christian life. There ought to be. And there is. Luke 2.10 talks about the fact that those who have received Jesus Christ into their hearts experience the good news of a great joy. There ought to be joy. And if there's not joy in your life, something is wrong. Desperately. But the main point of this whole parable is the fact that this awesome feast is prepared by God. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. We're just simply invited. And as sinners, all we need to do is just to come and joy and eat. That's it. You know, it talks about just the simplicity of the gospel. Wiersbe points out that uh, Jesus called it a great supper. Why? Because it was planned and executed out of a great love for a great need at a great cost. Two little words stand out in our passage here this morning. Everything and the word now. God has done everything he needs to do to save lost sinners. We can't contribute anything he's done at all. He finished it at the cross. Everything. We can't contribute anything to our salvation. He finished the work 2,000 years ago. And that table is spread out with everything we need. Forgiveness and cleansing and peace and joy and everything else. First Peter tells us he has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God for that. And it's everything, and the other word is now. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. 
The sign outside the door of the dining hall says, no waiting. <laughs> Don't wait. Don't put it off. Everything is ready now. The second scene of this parable is the invitation come. God has prepared salvation for a, for a lost world. And he has sent his servants, his slaves, that's you and me, to basically go out and invite people to come in, to enjoy what God has prepared. That's our job. You see, God's greatest desire is to fill up his house. <laughs> he wants his house filled up. He wants us to uh, spend eternity in heaven with him. We were made by God. We were made for God. And unless we really understand that, this life doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This life is the boot camp. It's preparation for what we will be practicing now, but doing for all of eternity. Come. One of the greatest words of the gospel. Religion tells a sinner to, to work and to, to do and to go and to pay. God says, just come. It's an invitation. He says, to everyone. Revelation 22, 17 says, Come, let, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It's really simple. It's not rocket scientists. Uh, it, it's not rocket science. It, the simplicity of the gospel is so evident here in this passage. All a person needs to do is to take that simple step of faith and trust in Christ. That's it. The door is wide open. The feast has been spread out for all to enjoy. But the invitation here also suggests something else. It suggests uh, basically the responsibility of a person to act on that, on that invitation. It's an open invitation for everyone to, to enjoy, but basically it's a choice on our part to receive it. An invitation is not any good unless you accept it. You can RSVP, but you still have to show up. A gift is not a gift unless you take it. You have to take it. It's a choice on your part. Eternal life, in other words, is not automatically yours. You and I don't all go to heaven by default. It's one of the things I explain at every funeral, every memorial service that I do. People say, well, you know, this person's in a better place. How do you know? I don't know that person's heart. You don't know my heart. I don't know yours. Have they trusted Christ? How do you know? Don't assume that that person is in a better place. The Bible tells us, but as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. How do we take that gift? Familiar passage. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart, and I knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and what? Dine with him. What does that mean? To have a fellowship, a relationship of joy. A personal uh, a friendship with God himself through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a feast. It's a banquet. And so while salvation begins with, with God, his invitation is addressed to the person's mind and heart and spirit. There's no conflict, by the way, between God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility. Although it's very difficult for us with our limited uh, small brains to really comprehend how those two meet, but they do. And so you would expect everyone to respond enthusiastically to this invitation, but that's not the case, is it? Those invited begin to make all kinds of excuses. One guy has to go out and buy, a, or he bought a piece of property, and now he wants to look at it. Another person went out and bought five oxen, and he wants to plow with them to see how they do. And the third guy just got married, and for some reason he doesn't want to bring his wife to the banquet. Now these people did not 
reject the invitation because they were doing something wrong. They weren't doing something unbiblical, unethical, or immoral. These people were doing good things. There's nothing essentially wrong with real estate. There's nothing wrong with plowing with a couple of uh, oxen, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying your spouse at home. These people were rejecting the best for what would I consider to be second best. One person put it this way, the good is often the enemy of the best. John Piper, in his book, A Hunger for God, I love this book, he puts it this way, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetite is not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. He goes on. Jesus said some people hear the word of God, and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life. In another place, he said the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The pleasures of this life, the desires for other things, these are not evil in and of themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of these things can be deadly substitutes for God. Which leads to the third scene of this parable, which is condemnation. Verse 21. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done. And there are still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. You know, we don't often think about the anger of God. People like to emphasize the love of God. Does God get angry? Yes, he does. God gets angry. Why? Because he had prepared a great banquet and had paid a great price. And these invited guests, they insulted him by not coming. In Eastern uh, societies, uh, to turn down an invitation is a serious thing. If a leader invites someone else to come over and they don't come, it could be a, a grounds for a war. People who refuse his loving invitation are basically people that have no respect for God. The people today that that don't come to Christ are showing no respect for God at all. They don't care. They're bored. They yawn. Whoop-de-doo is their attitude. Paul says in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What people don't understand is that God's invitation is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's a command. Acts 17.30 says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Again, it's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. You better come. To reject his invitation is to disobey his will. And it causes God to be angry. 
because of the great price he paid to provide for this lavish meal, this banquet that he provides for us. How did the host show his anger? Well, he sent the servants out to look for other guests. Notice he did not plead with the first guest. He didn't say, hey, please come. God didn't beg. He just simply went out and found other people to replace them. And so the servant ran through the streets. He ran through the alleys to find the, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And he didn't even stop there. He left the city, went out to the country. He found strangers, <laughs> foreigners, it says here, who walked the highways, people that weren't even from the area, and also from the homeless, uh, the people that were sleeping and living in the bushes. It was, all, it was all these people that responded and filled the house. Why? Why did these outsiders accept salvation and the insiders refused and rejected him? Why is that? Because the outsiders knew their need. They knew they were lonely and hungry and thirsty and they were ready to die. On top of that, they were not welcome anywhere else. Leave it to the Lord to invite those that nobody else wants. And so these rejected people, they don't make any excuses, and they don't postpone the decision, the invitation. They come, and they believe the message, they came to the feast, and they discovered they were welcomed, and they were loved. The Lord here was warning the Jewish people that if they reject what God is offering through the Messiah, God will take that message of salvation to the Gentiles, and that's exactly what God did. Why did they do that? Because, well, here, let me, let me just say this. The big lesson here is don't mess around with the gospel invitation. Why? Because the next thing that the host does is he closes the door. He shuts the door. In verse 24, it says, None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. None. He closes the door. The invitation went out one time. They didn't respond, and they lost out forever. No wonder the prophet warns in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Because it implies that he's not always near and he's not always to be found. If any of those original guests had showed up later, the door was closed. I went to a wedding a couple of months ago and I was sitting at the reception table and everybody had, knew I was the pastor, I'd just done the wedding and a Jewish woman that I was talking with for quite a while looked at me with enthusiasm and said, I think reincarnation is great. Do you believe in reincarnation? And I said, no. Really? <laughs> no. And I thought, well, I'm not going to give my opinion. I'll just tell her what God's word says. You know, it says in, in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once. Once. And after this comes judgment. And so you really have to make the most of what you have in this life because you don't get a second chance. She was so crestfallen, and she just looked away. And I thought, well, there's the end of that relationship. But I, I tried to be loving. I tried to help her understand that reincarnation is not an option. I think she was really holding out for the day that she could say, I get to do a do-over. I get to start again. No, the invitation goes out once. In this life, we have one shot at it, and that's it. Have you responded to the invitation? This morning, have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's the boss, he's the one behind the, 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 the steering wheel, he's the one driving the car, he's the boss, he's the Lord. If you confess, yes, that's who's in charge. 
And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is, he is who he claimed to be, proven by his resurrection uh, from the dead, it says, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Only in him, only in him can we have the assurance of our salvation. Only in him do we have the eternal life that he has promised to us. Let's pray.